Hello, everybody. It is now 10 o'clock if you're in the UK or if you're wherever my friend Daniel is, which is uh, Carolina. Uh, it's what time is it there? It's 5.02. 5.02. You see, that's the beauty of a time difference. Um, we are going to come back and talk music any minute now. Uh, but first, we're going to watch the wonderful video from Analog Trash. Do enjoy this uh, and then visit the website afterwards. Keep on, don't stop, there you go. Let me just get my glasses on so I can see. Daniel from the Velt, how how the devilment are you? Where? <laughs> okay as one can be. Okay as one can be, yeah. yeah. So you've, you've, you've joined us to talk about music and you've, you've just released a glorious piece of music. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Because it's got one of my favorite artists helping you out on that which is the wonderful robin guffrey mm. um how, how did you how did you first meet robin there must be a story in that there. we first met robin through uh, an a and r uh, lady on capital and we have found out that uh, well at the point at the time there was a big uh bidding war with us or something like that and we wanted to go with the ones that could help us get in contact with robin so Capital went out and they had just been signed to Capital. And uh, we met them through uh, our A&R person named Claudia Stanton. That's how it happened. That's how it happened. Mm -hmm. uh, and with meeting Robin, because obviously that's, that's quite oh, yeah. a story. That's, in, in, that's quite a story in terms of, you know, ha making sure that that did happen. Did, yeah. did did meeting Robin live up to your expectations? Because <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what they say: be careful about meeting your heroes. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. After you get over, put put it, put it this way: after you get over the initial awe of of meeting someone you meet, then again, you you become friends, and then you become targets. You know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, that's our relationship with Robin. You know, uh, he just became a friend and just. Pretty much, it, it was just some guy we were working with, to be honest. I yeah. mean, smart mouth, smart alecky, quick comebacks, you name it, the whole thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, uh, I mean, it turned out to be our, our, in the beginning, our relationship was based on, uh, you know, the LP and everything. But we, and of course, we became friends. But throughout the years, we kept in touch, and our friendship just stayed together. Yeah. You know, because we didn't give up. When you are with someone like that, that's obviously, and you know, you you were pioneers yourself, but the, the, the pioneer of sound in, in a particular arena. Well, you know, is it, I was just going to say, you know, is there a temptation to to keep secrets, or do, or do you do you, do you have you got the kind of relationship where you do you actually 
you share how you how you make these sounds, etc. Well, with with that sounds of of the guitars and things, that was my brother and Robin. They they masturbated over there all day long. I got I'm I'm the singer. I I play. I'm one of four guitar players in the band, which we we stole the idea from Robin as well. But they said, and at the time, they talked about rack mounts and all this kind of shit. I just got bored with it. But the sound in, inherently is uh, was developed by my brother and him. Mind you, we had a sound already that we we're playing before then. But I think working with him, it pretty much developed us to where we needed to be because in the beginning, we were all kind of all over the place. You know. A bit like, you know, the way the Stones started. They started doing covers and then pretty much they started writing their own stuff. Well, when we met with Robin, we weren't doing covers of things, but, you know, we, we pretty much got rid of a lot of things in our repertoire that that were not us anymore. So we, we as a singer as well, I mean, you'll hear on the LP that we put out with him for 35 years ago, I was a different singer. I was very young. I don't think I had an idea about, like, how to put it across without being over the top. Some and, and Robin got around, got rid of a lot of that stuff. He cut off the excess. It's very interesting that you asked that because you know we became a different band, a very different band, and we were already becoming different. But when we went to England, that's when it all like came to a head. I remember the LP started off in Chiswick at a place called Eden Studios. Mm-hmm. And it was where the Banshees had recorded uh, Hyena. Because I remember going there and looking in the closet, looking at the tapes, and I said, oh, shit, Hyena's on here, you know, right? And then Moody Blues were recording there, and so was Anya at the time. So we were in our element, you know. And so, of course, after all of this was over, we weren't really in the same circles anymore after we went back home because we were a completely different band, you know. We came back home, we were dropped from the label. And, um, well, actually, originally, the, the record was supposed to have been a, 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 a collaboration with Robin Guthrie and Vernon Reed of Living Color. Uh, we were supposed Ooh, to, yeah, yeah, we, fin- we finished in, um, in December, I think late November, and we're getting ready to head back to America. And I told Vernon on the phone, I said, yeah, it's going really great, blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden, we get called into the office next door. Because, you know, we used to, we were uh, recording at uh, September Sound, which is Robin's studio, right above Eel Pie, which was Pete Townsend's studio. But anyway, we'll talk about that later. But anyway, Robin goes, we're getting ready to go back to America the next day to record with, with, with Vernon. Robin goes, no, I'm not doing it. We're like, doing what? He goes, I'm not letting someone else fuck up my record. And I'm like, your record? <laughs> so he goes, either you record the whole record with me or I'm not going to do it. Wow. Let's <laughs> 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 so, I called my manager. It was Jay Ferris. Who owns, he now owns Lion Gates Film. I said, yo, dude, just do time out. He don't want to give us the tracks and we don't want to do this and that. What are we going to do? He goes, well, I mean... I don't remember what he said, but I, I remember calling Vernon Reed and said, Vernon, he don't want us to do the record with you. He wants to do the whole thing. He goes, how do you feel? He goes, Vernon said, man, do what you gotta do. You know, we did it. 
you know, Robin, you know, uses muscle because you know he's he's a bit of a yob. <laughs> and so you record the whole album there. And every day it was something else, dude. It was like, you know, initially when we first got to Britain, our, our welcome home, a welcome to Britain party was in a hotel off Kensington High Street. In the room was Mick Jones, Daniel Dax. Wow. Mary, yeah, the Mary Chain, Roddy Frame, all in one room hanging out with us. And I said to my brother, I said, damn, we're in England. Because, you know, I was always burning out, getting blitzed, the enemy sounds. I, I, I lined my, my, my room with that shit. I was getting all my information from, from England. And it, I was, it was that anticipation that, you know, I would go looking with stars, what new English man? Because, you know, I, I put England this way. England is to music as Japan is to animation. I mean, the, the things out of Britain at the time were so unique. Well, anyway, so we had decided to go ahead and do the album with Robin. And uh, he goes, hey, you guys want to do a gig? I'm like, yeah. He goes, well, my friend Edwin Collins is playing at Oxbridge College. Why don't you open up for Edwin? That was our first gig in, in, in Britain. And, and, and the thing about it was Liz and Robin came to the show and Lucy Bell, who had just been born. So that was Lucy's first show with Edwin Collins. So in the beginning, you know, a lot of those formative times in Britain are responsible for who we are right now. It's but, a, what, what, what was it about, because, you know, a lot of people would say that shoegaze, like a lot of other music, was kind of born in Britain. What, what, what was it about? Yeah, what, what was it about what was happening in that kind of scene that kind of interests you to it? Well, to start off with, I was in high school. I would get smashes. <laughs> There's a paper. <laughs> yeah, I would get a smash hits looking at what was going on over there, you know, trying to dress like them and everything, finding the, you know, uh, like the, the, I was a blitz kid for a while, but they called me Prince. So you, you couldn't get away from it. They didn't know anything about new romantics at the time. So um, it's just uniquely English, I have to say. But I would say that the shoegaze, I don't know, because it, it, it didn't, that the term didn't exist until a summertime in 1980. 1988, I think it was. And I talked about Moose, who was Robin's right. engineer, bass player, was in the band Moose. And it came out that summer, and that was it. I never heard anything out. When and we went to Britain, we never heard the term shoegaze. Fast forward to 2000, the late, the early to late 2000s, the term came back again when some people had discovered us and said, oh, the top 10 shoegaze bands and so and so. And then my brother called me, he goes, hey, you see this shit? I said, what is it? Oh, we're in the top 50, top 10 shoegaze. Shoegaze? I said, what the fuck is that? I mean, you mean that stuff they talk? I literally, and this was around the time when All Tomorrow's Parties was happening in uh, America. Some kind of festival. And uh, I think it was called um, Trip Hop. And mm -hmm. Big. So there was a gap there that needed to be filled. And all of a sudden, uh, my buddy Valentine came back around. There was a clamor to have them back, like like Led Zeppelin. People, they wanted it back, you know? Mm. And um, 
And the thing that was funny is that we were there when it was actually happening. But we, did, we really didn't get a lot of love from the, a lot of those bands. I mean, the Mary Chain did, and, and they were not shoegaze, whatever, but when we got dropped from Capitol, the Mary Chain put us on tour, and that was really cool of them. Um, it seemed like all the Scottish people treat, all the Scots treated us really, really cool. It's like Roddy Frame, it's like Roddy Frame getting to know those guys. And I'm not quite sure if any of the guys in Wolfgang Press were, were, were there, but Wolfgang Press and AR King, they were like around the studio all the time. And and then fucking uh, Diff Juice, they came around. And then one day was Shelly and Orphan. So how could we not change? It was just ridiculous. You just wouldn't believe it. And, and we got to know them as friends. Our last yeah. goodbye party in Britain, well, in, we were in London, was A.R.I. King, Wolfgang Press, Roddy Frame, uh, I think Diff Juice were there, and Cockroaches at one fucking table. Can you believe that? That's amazing. It is, but nobody would ever believe it. And the thing about it is, when we, at least, you know, where I grew up, you know, was, I, I was treated very badly by my own kind. You know, called faggot, white boy, you name it. But then again, in high school, I was treated the same as the other white students who were kind of, you know, I only fit in fit in with the, the overly effeminate guys, which I didn't understand. The yeah, guard. Yeah. And the guys in smoking course. I didn't smoke, of course, but I had long hair. <laughs> black friend. I was black, I were black. I was like a black goth. And they hated me. And um, my point was is that it came 360 at that table when you left because all those people I had put on I were on my wall, you know? And I guess my point was this is that that we didn't think we thought by being in this kind of atmosphere of indie kind of alternative people, it would be a little bit more of a more liberal liberal type of mind thinking. Yeah. But that's not true. It turned out even because we were very naive. But was it was there I have to ask, I mean, was there a kind of race issue from Oh God, yeah. Well no with with within the sort of management and the record companies at the time with all Um, because I mean, you know they everybody wanted their living color. Right. And when we didn't, and when we didn't. When you didn't rock up with the rock soul thing. All our friends were like that, though. I mean, I don't have anything. I mean, Living Color and 24-7 Spies, them motherfuckers put us on tour when we first got, people started knowing where, and it was, they're like, y'all ain't nothing like us. I'm like, y'all ain't nothing like us. (laughs) You know, Fishbone, they're like our brothers. You know, but we were a lot different than them. And they knew it. We talked about it all the time. It's kind of like, like a, like a, it, kinda, it was kind of like a renaissance of the way jazz was. And if you ever look at jazz, like documentaries or movies, you'll see the, these brothers talking among to themselves about how it is dealing with white people in this, you know, like for example, there's a movie by Spike Lee called um, Do the Right Thing. Mm-hmm. And he goes, why is there, why is the audience all white? Why don't we come <laughs> and see our own shit? And I'm asking myself the same thing. Mind you, when we opened up for the Mary Chain, we were booed twice. Really? Yeah, and I told him to suck my black dick. <laughs> we were in, it was the first night in Toronto. And uh, this is the time when we had was playing all of our stuff. And this is when we learned to take off all this dancey bullshit and put all the rockers down. And it was just a strange stream of consciousness because we didn't really think about it. 
because we thought that you know we're we're in an indie crowd people would be more open but it wasn't like that he got on stage in in montreal we started playing there was a girl at the concert she just oh, you fucking suck you fucking suck i said bitch I took my guitar and I put it, I said, suck this right here. If you don't want to fucking listen to the opening band, take your fucking skanky ass outside and then come back. Yeah. That was, that was the first night. I said, I think in the crowd went, yeah. So obviously it wasn't the whole crowd. No. So then in Montreal, we played the Masonic Temple. Man. Because we had just gotten back from England. We were in all leather. We had leather coats, big ass dreadlocks, playing jazz masters and jaguars. Danny had a fucking 12-string rocks. It was like ridiculous. I turned around to check my amp. And someone said, Living Color. And I said, went to the microphone. I said, suck my black dick. And the crowd went, yeah. <laughs> and do you know it? Marvin, our drummer was mad. He says, hey, take that back. I said, look, motherfucker, you shut the fuck up and play the goddamn drums. Marvin was mad. He was, he, I mean, you know. It was just like, and we started playing, and we started playing really fast. And before you knew it, there was a pit in front of us. And I said, how about that, motherfuckers? And we commenced to whooping their ass every night. <laughs> One night, we were in Tennessee, someone came back and said, hey, man, why are you guys opening for them? We're like, shh, shut the fuck, come in here. No, don't say that. You know what I mean? It wasn't a, a matter of beating everybody every night. It was a matter of, it, the Jesus and Mary chain helped us as well to become the kind of band we needed to be. And they only said two things to us on the tour. We knew Richie, the drummer, and we knew the bass player, Ben. <laughs> we knew those guys. We knew them through Robin. Because Richie used to play with uh, uh, A.R. Kane. Yep. You know? And rem re remarkably enough, we did the first gig uh, in at Oxbridge College with Edwin. Our drummer was, uh, his name was um, Benny DeMassa, who played with Adam and the Ants. And wow. yeah, 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 yeah. You know, so we 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 were in good company. Robin really looked out for us, man. We're really a good company. And I'm I'm really we're really fortunate. But the thing about it was nobody believes it. Nobody's gonna believe it two old middle-aged black guys, you know, with a cocktail in the lush word. I mean, and we, we were and we were in Britain before we left. Uh this is how close it is because Ray Conroy uh was managing Lush at the time. And I love Ray, he's a sweetheart. And uh he goes, hey, got a band named Lush. You guys want to play? Got five dates. I said, shit, let me call the company. So I called Capital. Capital's like, no, not time yet. What we should have did is did it anyway. Yeah, right. That's what we should, and we shouldn't have went back home. Robin goes, just go, just want you guys to stay. I said, no, are you crazy? Can't you stay? I mean, hindsight, I mean, what would it, it probably would have been better. I got I to gotta be honest with you, because every time we went to Britain, they go, oh, you missed the window and the sound and this and this and that. But, you know, you know, I, I you know, we really owe a lot to Robin, you know. Do, do you do you think that it sounds like you don't miss the time when record companies held that much power? I don't, I mean, because we were never, we came from a hardcore back. Well, we were never really a hardcore band, but in our town, this is where uh, Corrosion of Conformity are from, COC. So we were in high school and um, we, we, we come from that background. We, we were called the Psycho Daisies after like um, a Yardbird song because I was a big Yardbirds fan in high school. I'd take all my books to school and look at them, you know, and, 
and the other guys in the smoke, yo, dude, where'd you get this from? Because they didn't know anything about that kind of shit. You know, and they were like, yo, Daniel, man, you don't party. I'm like, nah, my mom won't let me. <laughs> so <laughs> I would just fantasize about these clothes and these guitars and these sounds. And so we're called the Psycho Daisies. I was on bass. Uh, my, my next door neighbor, Robert, was on keyboards. And Danny, my brother, fucking asshole, he was on guitar. And I remember they were throwing roses up on the stage when playing. So, you know, it, it was that kind of background that kind of gave us the initiative to keep going. You know, so we just didn't think that the world would be as ignorant as it was. You know, that, do do you feel do you feel the world has moved on now, or is it is it still got pockets of ignorance? Well, there's always pockets of ignorance, but in terms of music and accepting that. But perhaps you, you don't necessarily have to fit a stereotype. Has that improved, do you think? No. That's still as bad as it's always been. I think so. I mean yeah. I can't I can't really explain it. It's just like I think people's people's uh, irrational racism is built on their fear. But a fear of what? You know? I still I had I had a hard time trying to explain to somebody the inherent racism in Japan. Now I speak Japanese because I learned Japanese at elementary school. Mm-hmm. They made a it was a caricature of a black face, and I said, "Oh, some person went, oh, it's funny that um, they use the same the black face that they do in America." I said, "What do you think they got it from?" Initially, first Europeans, and it's called the Bakamo Bakamatsu era. era where they came over as minstrels in blackface and the Japanese adopted that. Even more so in World War II, when American GIs came over and did that shit. So, you know, that's their fear, what they don't understand. I mean, look, I mean, not every black person is perfect, Lord knows. <laughs> I'm black myself, but I'm not perfect. But there's a level of ignorance that hasn't been, that has not been breached to cure all of this. But I don't know what it's going to take. But like I said, our conversation started out like, Hey, if you want to know what you're doing in Nazi Germany in 1935, you're doing it now. So, you know, so I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I really can't call it. But I will say this going across the country in America, uh, meeting all these young people, these zillennials, mind you, they're, they're, they're like positive and they're like, what are you talking about? They don't know about any, it, it, they never talk about anything else but music. And they're so like, uh, like sponges, and like, hey man, and then you know, you guys are, are, are heroes, and so on. So they're like, really? Meanwhile, I'm thinking about how to pay my rent. And mm. <laughs> I can't get kicked out of my apartment. See, I don't know. You see, I don't know because I, you know, I interview a lot of artists from d- d- different generations, and mm. I interview a lot of the newer, younger artists that are coming through as well. And I just think that they, the younger generation, have embraced difference in a different way than any other generation ever has. I agree. I agree. They don't have the baggage we have. Yeah. You know, um, I think it's perpetuated by education. First off, I don't know. It's different with zillennials. It's very, yeah. very strange. Uh, I'll give you a good example, right? Uh, my daughter, she lives in Vancouver. She was hanging out with me for a year, right? And one afternoon I was on the couch because she kicked, she, because she took my bedroom. I was playing some demos. And uh, she's like, Dad, this is really good. Who is this? I said, it's me. She goes, stop, Dad, it is. I'm like, yeah, see, I told you. <laughs> she's like, it's really good, Dad. Well, whatever. I was like, yeah, whatever. Just keep doing what you're doing. 
but they they are it's very strange you know but i like it you know i think they're very I, I, it makes me it gives me hope to see them embrace something completely different and maybe perpetuate something new for other generations yeah maybe maybe a younger daniel coming out now doing this music might have had a different outcome yeah, yeah. well based on where we are in this country i probably just you know I, well, at one point i would have said i was going to go to europe but even europe's bad <laughs> 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 you know you know I, I, there was nothing i would have liked most better than been to go to britain yeah absolutely listen daniel it's been great having you on for a bit of a chat um tell people before you go about the the new record well actually it's not a new record but it is a new well release. it's the right. re-release of the record that was right back then back then <laughs> I, I was 24 or 25 you can tell by my book actually and it was recorded at september sound um in uh, in richmond actually and um liz is actually singing background on the second single called aurora borealis um it was recorded in 1989 uh robin and danny played most of the guitars there's a old as our bass player joe joe boyle plays bass and i think maybe lincoln even does some stuff lincoln fong was his uh engineer who mm-hmm. uh releasing his band stuff on our label look we have our own label called 5bc <laughs> And we've been doing the kind of thing that 4AD would have done had they still been cool. There's some good things. You know a band called Laundromat? Mm-hmm. They're fucking brilliant. I like them. That's probably one of the newest things out of England that I really, really like, to be honest. Uh, but yeah, but that's our record. You know, and we have a single out called The Everlasting Gobstopper. And uh, yeah, that's basically it. We're going to be cool. I, I, I agree with you with 4AD. They were my le- They were the holy. Trin- they were the holy grail of record labels at one point. Yeah, indeed. Still a good record label, but you know. Yeah. I think I think there's others now. Yeah, I, agree. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I don't want to sound like an old. Yeah, it was better when it was this, but come on. If you look at Freddie, you, know, you could be like, okay, come on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Really. Well, some someone that uh, I've had on here before who was on Four AD, which was uh, Christian Hirsch. Um, oh, yeah, we played with we played with Throwing Music. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, sweetheart, she's she's now on Fire Records, and I think Fire Records are doing great stuff. That's really? just my, that's, that just my, that's just my opinion. Fire. Okay, records. I gotta check it out. Okay, cool. Cool. Listen, Daniel, pleasure cool. to meet you. Pleasure to have you on, folks. If you haven't checked out Daniel's music. Please do. We'll put the links from uh, so you can go and check it out and, and, and download it and all of those sort of things after this. Uh, this has been me talking to Daniel from My Music. I hope you've enjoyed Conversation with the Velt. Uh, we'll be back sometime soon. Until then. Thanks, Graham. Take Bye care. Bye bye.